This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The public landscape isn't special anymore. It's not an economic problem. It's not a social problem. It is an aesthetic problem. People were aware of things that we may not be able to articulate. Art doesn't have that kind of functionality, but it has a very deep human functionality. The presence of art changes everything. Being mindful is a phrase that has become much more current. I think there's a payoff to that. Art is about paying attention. And I always thought, well, it's okay to ask people to pay attention. Jim De Silva, and he indicated at that time that he would like to get together and chat with me about a project that he had in mind. A couple weeks later, he arrived in my office, and uh, we got to chatting. He's a, he was a rather shy man. He had a brilliant business career. He and his wife had moved here from New York as a 50th birthday present to himself, He took a year off from his business and went to Columbia and took art history. He thought that art had really changed his life. And as they walked around the university and bicycled around the university campus, he began to think that maybe some sculpture on the campus could change other people's lives. Maybe it would really make a difference. What Jim put forward at that moment was really quite surprising to me. And it was the idea of a Stewart collection pretty much as it's evolved over time. And key to all of this, of course, was the advisory committee and the quality of people who became involved. But key to the whole thing has also been Mary Beebe. Mary Beebe, in a certain sense, has held the whole thing together through some very uh, difficult times. I was um, in Portland, Oregon, running a contemporary art space, and I got a phone call Uh, from Newton Harrison saying that they had a project uh, here at UCSD that they were thinking about some sculpture and would I come talk to them about it. There had been talk about making a sculpture garden or a sculpture area and doing the whole history of sculpture. I'd been at Stanford when they put in the Rodin collection and that had a tremendous impact on the campus. I was at UCLA when the Murphy uh, Sculpture Collection was uh, established. There seemed to be a big opportunity here for using a lot of the campus territory. The more I thought about it, the more I thought this was a job where there'd be no excuse for failure. (laughs) One of the smartest things Jim did was to set up an advisory board. 
it was a group of people who were all concerned and interested about this idea that Jim De Silva had, and also very knowledgeable about artists out there in the world who might be considered to do this. Their main role has been, as the artists have responded to the campus, the, to respond to the campus and suggest artists that they think would be um, wise to consider adding to the collection. So I invite artists to come to campus and think about ideas and talk about possibilities. And that idea is proposed, and we have to then, and that becomes very much part of my job, sort of figure out how that, uh, how that can embed itself in this landscape, uh, aesthetically but also practically. The university has a, a whole planning uh, department, and it has to, we, have to, we can't build things without uh, knowing what's going to happen around them. I know one of the, the issues with was placement was the master plan. Uh, every time I turned around with an idea or something or maybe a site or whatever, well, and I'm afraid that might be infringing upon the master plan. And I think that's probably one of the, the you know, nemesis of all public works is the master plan, you know, whoever has the master plan. But I didn't have a master plan. <laughs> I actually don't mind someone saying to me, these are the parameters and this is how much money there is, and you know, giving me like a little, a little set of rules that I have to work with, and I, I, don't, I don't mind that. They're like little puzzles that, that I then have to solve, and uh, I like that aspect of it. And then that idea, once it's been fleshed out, and budgeted and uh, and determined, you know, that it's feasible comes back to the Stewart Collection Advisory Board. And then, of course, the Chancellor has the final approval. Dick Atkinson came to be the Chancellor in 81, so his participation was key. And he has always been supportive. Actually, all the Chancellors have been supportive. Frankly, I was wildly enthusiastic, but it's not always a pleasant situation. One example um, is uh, seven vices and seven uh, virtues, uh, Bruce Nauman. It was the theater building that I liked. So I was thinking of like a library that would have author, uh, writers' names in, or, a, or a theater that would have playwrights uh, inscribed around it. Somehow or other, I came up with the idea of using the uh, vices and virtues. Well, the Weiss Theater, of course, sits on the edge of the campus. The sculpture is a neon sculpture that flashes on and off. And <laughs> the community, when they heard about this, at least a segment of the community, got very exercised. They could not tolerate this happening on the border of the campus. So the matter came to me, and uh, the decision was, what was I going to approve it or not? There was a series of articles in the newspaper, for and against, and there was a lot of emotion. That uh, earthquake testing building, and the, the guy that was the dean of engineering, anyway, he volunteered his building. That was really great, because it was a whole different way, but the glass top and it made everything look very different. The piece that's there, that's my favorite in terms of conceptual and built, is Nauman's. For me, that is so successful. And I consider that a conceptual idea. 
I didn't want to be responsible for technical things like fitting templates together and shipping and uh, that side of things. Matthew and I worked together pretty closely on, on developing the proposals and all of that, but once we get to the engineering stage or the architectural stage or whatever where it really requires a lot of technical input, that's when Matthew actually takes over and I do the fundraising and Matthew does a lot of the work with, with uh, uh, structural engineers or with who, whoever, but it, and also the artist, of course. We work really closely with the artist all along. Matthew came aboard at the very beginning as someone to help figure out how to install the sun god. I came down uh, very willingly and uh, happily, uh, pretty much not knowing what I was getting into or even how to do the stuff and figured out how to do it and built this two-legged uh, pedestal. And then uh, several months later, the bird came flying in. And then we moved on to Bob Irwin, and uh, that's how I started. Nikki, I think, was a wonderful, wonderful choice as the first artist, and, and really that choice came from Jim and Marne De Silva. And so Nikki was uh, someone who came with the deal, so to speak, and probably not someone who uh, the art uh, advisory board would have necessarily chosen. And uh, she turned out, of course, to be the perfect artist because she's a counterpoint for almost everything and because her work was so so much a part of the campus. Nikki de Sanfal didn't rely on anybody else's mythology or characters or stories or legends. One of the things she was really known for was kind of creating her own stories and legends and characters and mythology. And so most of her work has very, very bright colors, kind of um, exotic looking um, designs all over it. And the sun god fits right in there. It's not a situation where an artist makes something in their studio most often and then brings it here. Working with the artist and in, in, in figuring out the proposals is a big part of what I've done over the years. And that includes figuring out the cost, of course, figuring out the, the sort of nuts and bolts of how something is put together and how it works. A lot of times these ideas have been ideas that have never been built before, so they're one-off things that have to be designed from scratch, and that's a hard thing to do. I didn't ever manipulate the neon myself. I always made the drawings, and the glass blowers would make their template drawings, which were often a little different than my drawings, because they had to figure out how to bend the neon and make it all work. That's an interesting part of it, when you have an idea and you do it as a drawing, and then somebody else does fabrication and you're not necessarily completely familiar with how the fabrication works. It was hard for me to let it go, to let them just do it. Then also hard for me, because they did all the work, hard for me to take credit for it. Doho Sa's work, Fallen Star, is probably, over the all of these, is the most complex in terms of the orchestration and the design because it's a big, complicated object on top of a building that was built some 25 or more years before it arrived. And so the coordination required with all the different designers and the university and the design and construction arm, the campus architect uh, for the university, 
All of that required an enormous amount of, of coordination. Originally, my idea was actually the small house is connected, going to be connected on the side of the building, but we could not find that kind of building on the campus. Yeah. And then we end up having this side, which has a small rooftop. Having rooftop turned out to be a much better option because I could combine my trailer garden idea um, to this to this project. So instead of just having built a small building on the side of the large building, I end up being having the house kind of landed on the corner of the rooftop. I think in my mind, uh, I have rehearsed, you know, this sort of performance of house, lifting the house onto, onto the rooftop. You'd imagined. Yeah, imagined many times in my head. When I actually was here on, on the November 15th and when I saw the, um, the actual uh, lifting, the most striking thing was sort of level of involvement by all the people and parties who got involved in this project. That was quite impressive and actually quite moving. Some of the other works have been quite simple in terms of placement and design and uh, installation. Everything, in a way, needs to look easy. And so whether it's this house that's on top of a building or a pathway in the form of a snake uh, going up a hillside and circling around, or whether it's seemingly randomly placed televisions in a lawn, it all needs to look magical. It's not about, you know, all those nuts and bolts. That has to happen, but, uh, but that's not what the work is about. They make their homes in different ways. The sun god, for example, has made its home in a, in a very kind of social way. I remember buying a t-shirt with the sun god on it in the bookstore. It's become quite an important part of the collection and a bit of a symbol for it, I think. And a center of, you know, student activities and other things from time to time appear as offerings and clothing <laughs> and other such tributes. People have been doing these wonderful anonymous kind of interactions with the sun god and with other sculptures on campus. But the sun god especially gets a lot of attention. At graduation, it often will be dressed up with a cap and a gown, like, like a graduate, right? At Halloween, it's been a pumpkin. Somebody made a whole pumpkin costume for it. Somebody made it into ram bird. They gave it a bandana and a weapon and bullet belt and the whole thing. The Fallen Star piece, in some ways has become something like that. It's become a kind of a sign for the university. And other works are much more nuanced and subtle in their relationships with their sites. For instance, Bob Irwin's piece. The thing that interested me were the uh, eucalyptus groves, which were um, quite beautiful. But I knew that over the years, as this thing would grow, that it would probably begin to encroach upon the uh, groves of uh, eucalyptus. Uh, you know, they, they just need space so they would slowly eliminate the, the, the trees. So I thought I'd like to do something which would in a way preserve them. I put it in a situation so that all the students and the people that see it are actually going somewhere. They walk through it on their way to class, they walk through it on the way back. So they come upon it in a sense as a kind of in a more casual way and they do it every day 
so that actually over a period of time, uh, their interest in it maybe can be developed or they might you know, discover more and more about it, which I think is sort of what has happened. And the trees also, Terry Allen's trees, uh, are in some ways invisible. I have always had a real fascination with trees. Uh, I've, I've done several pieces that, that deal with trees. West Texas is one of the flattest places on the planet, and I think you're raised in extremely flat land, your eye always goes to a horizon, you know, and so what obstructs the horizon, it either is uncomfortable or it becomes something of acute interest. There's a standing joke, there's only one tree in Lubbock, and it's in front of the courthouse, and it has the word tree in a plaque. Uh, and right inside of it. And farmers come from hundreds of miles around with their kids and they go to that tree and they point at it and they say, that's what they look like. I had just an idea of taking a tree in the groves, finding a dead tree that was existing in the groves, covering it with sheet lead and putting a speaker in it. And it was decided to do three trees, but I couldn't just go out and find a dead tree and nail lead, like I don't know how many thousands of pounds of lead on a tree, and then slap a sound system in it. Because it was eucalyptus trees, the roots were very shallow and could easily fall over. So we started talking about the engineering issues. How would you preserve the tree? What kind of footings would you need? What about earthquakes? I can't remember exactly when I got the idea that I'll just invite a lot of people to do music and to do tell stories and whatever. But uh, that became the most exciting kind of thing to me was of, of offering somebody the opportunity to put something on a tree that they would like people to hear from a tree. The sound was not programmed like Muzak, where it was constant. It, there were maybe three songs would play, then there would be a silence, and then another song would play, and then and the silence. So we kind of orchestrated those silences in, uh, and the same with the, the storytelling trees. So you could easily, if you weren't aware that they were there, just walk right by and never know that the, the trees were there, or just hear something from some mysterious thing in the air. I like that idea of it having its own kind of mystery built into it. Those are works you could walk by and not know they're there. As you come to know them and, and as they enter your awareness, they become more and more interesting and more and more nuanced. You know, these, these works are so different. Uh, a piece like Bob Irwin's, for example, is completely sight-determined. A piece like Mike Asher's is completely sight-determined. He spent several years visiting the campus and came up with a number of different ideas. And he finally landed on this idea, which was to essentially place a marker at the very center of the historic Camp Matthews, which is the center of our current campus. And that marker is this drinking fountain. It's made of granite, and it's placed symmetrically opposite a stone marker that is the 
marker that says that Camp Matthews and Camp Kellen trained hundreds of thousands of Marines to shoot. It's untitled. It seems just extraordinarily understated. Most people probably go by there and think it's just a drinking fountain, but it works on so many levels. It embraces the whole history of the campus, conveys an awareness of the need for water in California and the conservation of water, and fulfills the functions of sculpture, which include representation. It's a representation, it's a sculpture of a drinking fountain, as well as being a functional drinking fountain and a kind of ceremonial object. The site is the source material and the inspiration for the work. And so placing something is not so much the issue as how does it arise from the site. You know, I think I chose the medical school because, you know, I had made work with figures, with bodies, and, and from a kind of medical information perspective or something that... Um, you know, so it was interesting to me to go into that building. Maybe I had felt more an affinity to that building than, or to the activities of that building more than some others. And um, I liked both that it was a medical school building, and but I also really liked that it was nowhere. Like it wasn't a place that was like sexy or attractive or. Yeah, it was just a thoroughfare. It was like it wasn't a place that was any destination or anything that had any attention to it. And I thought, you know, it's like the underbrush. It's always good to pay attention to those places also. My career started late in life for an adult. I mean, just even making sculpture. And then because the sculpture was so... Uh, architectural looking, it, drift, it drifted, actually drifted into, you know, big outdoor wood things, and then from that it, it went into, into stone and permanent things. I thought of the area as a, a meditative or you know, a, quiet, a quiet place for the scientists. I was very focused on making all kinds of mathematical design patterns because I, I hoped that as they were stepping out there you know, that they would start to notice the increments in what was happening with some of the patterns. But there are other pieces where placement, you know, essentially it's like a, a sculpture that gets placed somewhere. The sun god is that way. Elizabeth Murray's work is that way. I suppose to some extent the bear is that way even though it's extraordinarily monumental, and placement is definitely an issue that has to be figured out, both functionally and aesthetically. Originally, I, I thought I, I would have it out in, in just a kind of open field, and you would be able to see it from far away and, and come up to it. But then Jacob's School of Engineering was being built around the same time, and it presented this uh, a situation where you could kind of almost stumble upon it. You'd be walking along, and um, suddenly there, there it would appear which um, seemed really intriguing. And, and I think it kind of satisfied both being able to see it from a distance and also that, the kind of surprise element that I wanted. The element of surprise, I think. There's a sort of seduction that comes out of that. How did that get there? Or why is that there? The whole campus is a kind of garden. And to find these things in that garden is a big part of the magic. A friend of mine, a fellow artist, Robert Cumming, said that the best thing about being in a group show was hiding a piece and having just a few people see it rather than trying to win the show. Like, uh, like there's the Wegman. Like, oh, 
where is it? You know, that was much more interesting, Robert thought, and I, and I sort of bought into that about this piece here. The artists that we have completed projects with have been a, a big variety. I mean, the only painter, really, that we have is Elizabeth Murray. And the reason we ask her is because, first of all, I thought she was one of America's great painters, but her paintings were becoming more and more sculptural. And I thought maybe to have the hand of a painter would be interesting. It was a moment where she felt that she really wanted to try something completely new. Many artists have been drawn to the eucalyptus groves as a kind of a site because it's so characteristic, it's so open, and in some ways it's so unusual. It's not a natural forest, it's a kind of artificial forest. And, uh, and we walked uh, the full length of the campus down to the very south end where her work ended up being located. And she came up with this uh, idea of a lone shoe sort of running through the woods. She decided she really needed to have more control and build this in her studio, which was difficult for her. It was, uh, took over a big part of her studio for a long time, and I don't think she was all that pleased uh, about that, but uh, it was built by, uh, by her uh, assistant and took a great deal of time, and when it finally got out here, it really landed in this place in a way that was quite magical. You know, when you get into those kinds of things, you're dealing with committees, and I just don't have any patience or time for that. So, I, you know, I, I support the you know, public art, of course. I, I just don't want to be involved, you know, as, as, as a person. Kept on putting Mary off, you know, <laughs> you know I kept saying, Mary, I'm not, a, I'm not a sculptor, I don't do that, and I don't do public art projects. But she's pretty persistent. I just thought that since that's a place used by students, the images should be students, and, and the writing implements they use. The uh, pens and pencils, you know, just humble elements used for note-taking, but I decided to just to look at it very formally, too, and it would just be a parade or a sequence of colors, you know, red, you know, follows orange, follows yellow, blah, 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 you know. The colors on the doors came because when I knew they were going to be sliding doors, I said, great, we can have colors being created as they slide back and forth. Having taught uh, for a while in the art department there, my mem that's kind of my memory of the campus of UCSD and sort of emblematic of the campus, you know, palm trees and surf and so on. And it, and it becomes very monogamous, you know, the intersecting horizontals and vertical in the composition. I always want to say my work is not influenced by surroundings, you know, that I could work anywhere, but, it, you know, I, I think that wouldn't be true, probably. Yeah, so it's kind of fun, you know, to, to be uh, acknowledged in your hometown. Mary asked me if I was interested or had ever thought about sculpture, and I blurted out saying, yes, and I, I wasn't at all, but for some reason I said that I was. It's really a, a wonderful um, practice to go every month and stare at this space that normally people don't possibly look at. I found it full of all kinds of amusements and uh, details. The other strange thing is we planted uh, binoculars, and of course you could look into people's apartments. That was an added plus that I hadn't thought of, that 
almost like a cinematic aspect to it. It's a unique piece in, in my output. I haven't done anything. I thought I was become, going to become the panorama artist, and I would be going all over different places in the world making these things, but that's the one and only. The connection between object and site and material and time is something that becomes very much part of this whole activity of moving forward. Everything that exists in space exists also in time, and uh, somehow the maintenance of these works and, and the way that they change over time, because some of them really do change over time, uh, is part of their character. It's part of the aesthetic. It's part of the nature of what they are. For example, there is Nam Jun Paik's work that was intended to change over time and evolve over time. He wanted one part of this piece to be uh, live work. And I remember him saying, I want the students to be, ha to be able to have as much influence on this medium as it is going to have on them. And so he wanted the students to be able to sort of get their hands into live video and to be able to operate this synthesizer and change the way the TV signal looked on half of those TVs. At some point, all technology becomes obsolete. And he said, as far as the synthesizer goes, whatever exists in 25 years, I want the students to be able to move it forward. And we have just now, uh, over the last year, worked with two uh, classes uh, in the electrical and uh, computer engineering department here to make that happen. So this synthesizer has been completely reinvented as a digital machine. And then the other aspect of this work was the outdoor uh, Buddhas and televisions. Really what the Buddhas are doing is watching a very, very slow motion television show as these TVs are decaying and the grass is growing up through them and, and all of that is happening. In some ways it's similar to you looking at this wall of live televisions, it's just happening very slowly. So it's a work that really lives into the future and continues to change going forward and anticipates that change and anticipated it you know, during the artist's lifetime. The site is contingent, it changes. The work is contingent upon whatever is going on around it. There's been so much change that the piece is almost like a, like a historical monument of 1987. Instead of making it into like a funny, kitschy piece, it developed into kind of a beautiful piece with some embedded jokes. Several of the works are actually works that can only be experienced over a significant amount of time. And I would say Bob Irwin's is very much like that. In a 24-hour period, there's no way you could ever have the same experience of this sculpture because the sun is always going to be moving, the moon is always going to be moving, and casting different amounts of light or shadow. Sometimes it's not there, and then it's, sometimes it's very bright and very strong. It fluctuates day in, day out, where the weather fluctuates all day long. The beauty of, of, of sunlight and that is that it does quixotic things. Clouds will be there and it'll suddenly flash and be colored and then it'll go soft again. And, and so you have the, the power of nature that gets involved in it. And natural light, you can't beat it. I think that nature is bountiful in that way. Uh, it's got more tricks up its, up its sleeve than I've got up my sleeve, you know. The Fallen Star 
that uh, has a very strong presence in time. Obviously it takes a fair amount of time to just sort of experience it, but because of the fragility of its contents, because of the, these, all of these little personal items and photographs and so on that are all throughout the house, because of the garden, it rises and, and dies away and grows up again. There's a constant presence of this thing through time and taking care of it becomes really a significant part of the art itself. Richard Fleischner's is very much like that. It takes an hour to look at a work like that. In second grade, I remember taking all the blocks, the wooden blocks, and they were these modular blocks. One of the things from early on was, you know, does not play well with others or is not because I wouldn't let anyone use the blocks and I wouldn't let anyone help me. And I remember building this enormous complex out of these very nice wooden blocks, the likes of which are unusual now. This block was right on the corner of the rectangle. Oh yeah, that's the corner. Okay, well I'll get your drawings. So the modular blocks was not an original idea. When I started at the Stewart Collection with that particular site, everything was a particular distance. It wasn't arbitrary. There were sight lines, there were adjacencies, there were material interactions, there were subtle color distinctions because we used two different granites. A lot of it was a play on the eucalyptus trees, which later, I think, got removed or certainly got thinned. Things have changed, and that's fine, and things should change. My issues were issues of self-criticism, so of seeing problems with my initial concept. Perhaps it works much better than when I last saw it. There are many levels of perception that happen with these works. Barbara Kruger's is certainly one of them because you are kind of taking in information. Barbara came up with this idea that uses many surfaces in that space, including the floor and this gigantic wall. And she installed an image, which is an image of time. It's a very rough kind of silk screened image of two clocks. The rectangles in the ground are terrazzo, and they all contain quotes by everyone from Andy Warhol to Edgar Allan Poe that are reflected up on the wall with uh, these uh, statements and done in a similar way up on the wall. It looks like the terrazzo, and it says another sweater, another love, another day, another dollar, and so on and so forth. And then there is a news feed that comes through from Reuters and other sources that has the news of today. And so you have this uh, kind of different messages of very different orders sort of happening at the same time. What's happening today at this very moment? Always different, always changing, right? And then you have the permanence of these quotations. Her work is really about how we are to each other and how we convey meaning through uh, signage, through words and uh, through media. 
Jenny Holzer had done so many works that involved so many different kinds of texts. She has aphorisms and, you know, kind of extreme statements and texts that read like poems and texts that are very, very short and read like just declarative sentences. And this is a kind of compilation of many different kinds, a sort of dictionary of Jenny Holzer's work, in a way, or of her work up to that moment. And it contains so much. There are statements that sort of force you to think about whether you endorse it or not. As a kind of communal space, you know, this giant shared table that students can sit at and study or talk or uh, stand on top of or perform at or whatever, it becomes a kind of receptacle for all kinds of different ideas, which is really what a university is about. The collection has been extraordinarily rich in the ways that it has explored the different aspects of the university. I'm thinking about the Ian Hamilton Finley piece, which is a very sophisticated but very specific uh, and grounded piece. He uses text to create a sculpture, which is a series of blocks where the text morphs from one to the next to the next to transform the word unda, which is wave, which, of course, it's sighted looking over the, the water. And so you have a very specific reference to the actual location of the piece on campus. And then on the other hand, it refers to language and the way in which the whole academic experience is grounded in language, uses language, creates language. It just was important that people not only enjoyed it physically and thought, wow, they did that, but it was also important that it relate to some real powerful cultural ideas about knowledge and where you get them and how your life is transformed. And that's why the university is just the perfect place to do it. I think that the whole metaphor is sort of about the, like the role of education and whatever, and I think it was a moment of transformation for myself when I went to college, and I think it probably is a transformative moment for a lot of people that go there. The flavor of going somewhere to some place where you become enlightened and you think about yourself and you find your direction and all that kind of stuff. I think all that stuff is, is in the bigger picture of the snake path that you see. see. What would a campus be without the vices and the virtues? He's another artist whose work has been very, very largely, but not certainly not entirely, text-based. So his idea of putting these words on a building is very much like the kind of things you see on academic buildings all the time. Not that I think that was what motivated him, but I think it's definitely a kind of way in which it makes a lot of sense in a campus setting. It's one of the more audacious works in the collection because it's big, it's bright, it's neon, it's out there and in some cases literally in your face. The building is a totally functional building and this is a kind of grace note to that. I've been to an exhibit to look at paintings. I really like paintings, too, but now um, statues are like a new interest, I guess you'd say. I thought there was going to be like statues of like people, and, uh, and then there were like metallic trees, and then there were like rock statues and all sorts of things. Do you think it's weird that it's at a school like this? Well, you're learning about art, so, and then there's going to be art around you, 
it creates an environment, I guess you could say. Somebody looks like took a bite out of one corner. That bite is going to fit right into this notch they made on the top of the building, right? And then the house sits up there, and they fastened it down, and there you go. This building will never not have a house on it. Is it extremely? I thought it was just going to be walking around like a little sculpture garden, like they have at museums and things like that. But I didn't expect to go walking all over the place like we did today. I like this house that we're in right now, the uh, because it's leaning. Now look what happens. Oh my God, <laughs> the floor's curved. Wow, like no, remember I said oh the floor is tilted, but you know what? Miss Rachel is, is standing at the tallest point, but the ceiling is higher than the top of her head. Right. We have a huge mix of responses. Everything from delight, distress, dismay. But it does attract them. Well, I'm not sure what the concept behind it is, but I think it's pretty cool that we have a talking tree. Sometimes it comforts me and sometimes it scares me like that one time that it was playing kind of scary music. Like creeps me out. It's kind of like our second mascot almost, yeah. I feel like. Even we just were like, oh, where are you at? Like the sun god statue, like it's easy to identify. It's like colorful, big. I feel as though if they explained the art piece better, then we would be more open to trying to figure out what it is. The thing I like about it is that it gives a little bit of a softer, non-institutional feel to this pretty institutional place. People have actually got very excited about the house going up, but there was also, there were complaints about how can they be spending so much money on something like this? We don't need it. It doesn't have any function. The fact is, we don't take one nickel from the students. We go through the university process, but we provide all the money for each of the projects from my efforts at fundraising. Students um, have different responses. I think some could care less and some really respond. One student said to me, not long ago at a, at a gallery opening, the campus gallery opening, that uh, when he first came on campus, he didn't really think about art, but he saw the Bob Irwin and he thought, that could be art. A grad student came back as a visiting professor in theater and dance and called me and said, I've got to get some theater students down to the other end of campus. I didn't know we had a Bruce Nauman. One student came back from Paris and said, I saw this fountain in front of the Beaubourg, and I knew who did that. It was Nikki's Stravinsky fountain that she did with John Tingley. Others have said, I didn't think a lot about it while I was there, but I've got these images. I have memories of almost all of them. So that's what we want. We want to do memorable art. It's not didactic. It's not trying to teach people why art's important. It's just there. You know, people project whatever kind of religious or intellectual or any kind of meaning that they, they wanted on it. Or they could just go on it and enjoy walking on it and not think about it at all. Everybody that sees it says, oh, you found the perfect rock for the head. Well, we weren't looking for a head rock. Really, it's the viewer that brings that kind of interpretation to it. It's not a sculpture garden in the in any of the ordinary sense. In the beginning especially, it distinguished that campus from any other campus. It doesn't have that uh, the kind of formality that, uh, oh, say, uh, the mall at Ohio State has. 
This is a unique new approach and has created a, a unique collection. It's been sort of a San Diego secret. And now as people hear about it and get to know it, I think people are responding with a lot of enthusiasm. We like to think that it's inspiring creativity. The Stewart Collection has inspired other campuses. UC San Francisco started a program when Mike Bishop was the chancellor. He had seen the Stewart Collection and he asked me if I would come talk to them about putting some art on that campus. People kept saying, how are you going to top the Jose's fallen star? It's not about topping things. I don't try to outdo each one. We just try to do each one. Right now we have four proposals and a kind of expected order in which they might come up. But we have been working on developing all four. This next proposal that we're working on, a project that we're working on, is music. John is a composer who's worked with natural sounds, sounds from the earth, sounds from the wind, sounds from the rustling of the trees. Music is his world, and we hadn't done anything like that. We've got music on the singing, talking trees, but we've never actually worked with a composer. Once we get all the money raised for that and get it installed, we're pretty ready with the next one right after that. It takes persistence, and I suppose passion. You gotta care. And I do care, so I hope that helps make others care. It's really important to have things that are inexplicable physically in your daily life. Ad Reinhardt said, art is art and everything else is everything else. It's a good place for us to end.
Well, in the beginning, I think I was, might have been between dogs. <laughs> okay, Topper, that's enough. He kind of knows when it's, he's on, right? He yeah. knows when everything's on. I think I should probably remove them, otherwise that's all we're gonna get, right? It's dogs. Yeah, and they seem to know when the electric moment is. Yeah. So, see, so he wants to be up on stuff, yeah. I won't be able, I won't be able to think or answer any questions. <laughs> anyway, I did this piece of San Diego to get away from the dogs for at least a few days. And it turned into almost a year of getting away from the dogs. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.